It's number one with a Bullard, the audio edition. I'm Gabe Bullard. Episode 6, The March of Cuteness. Were old toys always creepy? This is a question I've asked myself ever since I saw an early Mickey Mouse doll in an antique store as a kid. You've probably seen photos of these. Mickey is more rat than mouse. Instead of the sweet roundness from the cartoon, the doll's face is pointed. Its snout extends in an upward curve. The whiskers are either drawn on or they're made of yarn that doesn't seem to be quite long enough. The stitches down the front of the face give the doll shape, but make it seem like it's recovering from post-surgical swelling. It doesn't help that seeing one in person today means looking at it under decades of dirt, discoloration, and smudged fingerprints. The dolls are more like anthropological specimens than toys. That corner of the antique store where I first saw a cursed Mickey also had lifelike dolls from the 30s, their paint chipped and cracked. If you see an old toy in a photo, it's usually a blurry home snapshot in sepia or black and white with unexpected shadows and film grain, held by a stranger or by a younger version of a loved one who is so unrecognizable in youth they may as well be a stranger. I wonder if this is uncharitable. Manufacturing technology wasn't as advanced then, and my view is shaped by growing up in the 90s, a time of aggressive cuteness in kids' entertainment. We had progressed past the off-putting bulbousness of Cabbage Patch Kids into a general soft plushiness of big eyes and friendly faces. Toys for boys sometimes had attitude, conveyed through an arched eyebrow, a toothy sneer, or some kind of occasional physical spikiness, but they were still abundantly cute. Sonic the Hedgehog embodies this. He is fierce, but lovable. This is a surface-level assessment. Literally. Changes to the appearance of toys are the result of a change in the purpose of toys. Humans have played with dolls for most of our history. In America, an industrializing, urbanizing nation changed how we make dolls and how we think about childhood. By the end of the 19th century, many parents no longer saw their children as unfinished adults, but rather regarded childhood as a time of innocence that ought to be protected. Linda Rodriguez McRobbie wrote in A History of Creepy Dolls for Smithsonian. In turn, she writes, Dolls' faces took on a more cherubic, angelic look. The march of cuteness continued apace as the protected period of youth expanded. This may not have been any conscious decision on the part of toy makers. The things we see as cute and the things we consider innocent are linked in our head. From the bud in springtime to the human infant to the clumsy kitten, everything is born cute, the artist James Kachalka writes in The Cute Manifesto. There's a theory this is tied to our human evolution. Since our survival as a species depends on our willingness to care for newborns, it makes sense that we would feel compelled to protect and preserve the things we find cute. The oversized eyes of cartoon characters mimic the shape of children's faces. When toys become less lifelike, it's usually the result of exaggerating features like this, or removing detail. And the less detail on a face, the more we can project ourselves onto it. This idea comes from the comics theorist Scott McCloud's book, Understanding Comics. Surely the success of Peanuts is due in part to the fact that the star of the strip, Charlie Brown, is the least physically distinctive character. Kachalka sees cuteness as not only the sign of youth, but the antidote to the ugliness of the world. Cuteness is pure, he writes. Its unadulterated innocence shines like a beacon through the darkness of this world, untouched by evil or greed. Cuteness is simply a pure and rarefied form of beauty. Nothing is more beautiful than the cute, because...
because the cute is untouched by any foul thought or deed. So toys got cuter. This progress makes the toys of our own youth look different when viewed in a modern light. Whenever I visit family, I spend as much time as I can playing with my nieces and nephew. If we're at my childhood home, I'll go to my old bedroom and dust off a few toys to add to the fun. Looking through a box of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle figures this summer with Linda and our young relatives, I was surprised at how often I presented a figure and was met with, Ew, I don't like that. Or, What's wrong with him? I get it. These action figures are humanoid animals made of plastic that's textured to mimic the salmonella slick skin of amphibians, the warts of toads, or the matted fur of sewer rats. They have the rude attitude of old boys' toys, tempered for a six-year-old's palate. We're really hip. It's the palate of a six-year-old in the 90s, when these toys were slicker and cooler than anything that had come before. But by today's standards, they're far too strange to be a kid's toy. To a child in 2022, these figures are like an old Mickey Mouse doll is to a millennial. After the lukewarm reception from relatives, I put a couple turtles in my bag to take home. I still have fond memories of these toys, and even though I understand how a child today might look at them, I can't stop seeing them the way an adult in the 90s might have. It's a mere image of the child's view. They're not grotesque, just unrealistic and bizarre. They're too strange to serve any practical purpose, but are clearly meant to be a little cute and designed for a kid to play with. They're engineered to appeal to someone in a phase of life that we're no longer in as adults, and that didn't always exist. Thinking about it further, the concept of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles is mind-boggling. The words don't fit together. Teenage, teenage Mutant Mutant Ninja Ninja Turtles. They may have started as an adult-oriented spoof of the very serious superhero comics of the 80s, but the path the turtles took after they became children's entertainment is hard to understand if you didn't live through the phenomenon. Imagine you were born a century ago. You came of age in the Great Depression. You served in the military or contributed to the war effort at home during World War II. You eked out a living in the economic prosperity of the 1950s. You raised your children through the societal upheaval of the 60s. When it was morning in America, you retired with a pension and spent time with your grandkids. Then one day, just before Christmas, you found yourself in a KB Toys trying to decide whether to buy those grandkids something called Krang's Android Body or a playset of the Technodrome, a gray ball with tank treads on the bottom and an eyeball on top. But you buy it, because even if it doesn't make sense to you, it's meant for someone for whom the real world isn't yet a concern. To some degree, culture should always be a little baffling and a little challenging. If you perfectly understand everything around you, you're either omnipotent or sheltered. At the same time, that bubble of understanding and innocence seems awfully comfortable after we've experienced life outside of it. To an adult now, computer-animated cartoons and toys from modern manufacturing plants might look too slick or overly engineered. Paw Patrol can seem saccharine in its smoothness. But as adults, we see the seams. We know there's an ugliness outside of the bubble. We might want to puncture that bubble as an early warning. Life won't always be like this, kid. But we don't. Instead, we try to get back into the bubble. We try to extend it further into our lifespans. We obsess over the toys and movies of our youth. We let the media of adulthood become smoother, slicker, cuter in a grown-up way until images of real humans are processed to look like computer renderings. It's how we hold on to youth. But at what point does prolonged youth turn into arrested development? 
Looking through my old toys, I found one that I didn't need to explain to a younger generation. It was a Buzz Lightyear figure I got when I was 10. At the time I got it, Toy Story had just arrived in theaters. At the time I found it, a new Buzz Lightyear movie was on the way. Unlike the Turtles, not much had changed with Buzz. He seemed just as new in 2022 as he did in 1995. To infinity and beyond! Would my 10-year-old self have been as familiar and comfortable with a 27-year-old toy, something from 1968? Or would I have found those toys as scary as a Mickey doll or a Leonardo action figure? Would I even have been able to relate to an adult who found those toys fun? There is much suffering in life, but we do not exist merely to suffer. We exist to feel joy and to experience beauty, Kachalka writes. Sometimes beauty is unfamiliar, and it's easiest to experience beauty through media built to be frictionless. But there is friction in life. There is ugliness and there is suffering, and we can't hide from it. The more we hide as adults, the more we surrender. We let the ugliness overtake everything outside of our hiding places. This is not embracing cuteness, as Kachalka describes it. We don't live in a fantasy world where we pretend that suffering does not occur. Rather, we fight for beauty and purity, and we fight to make this world a more joyful place. And to win that fight, you have to move forward. You have to make something new and build a future that makes today seem old-fashioned. Thanks for listening to Number One with a Bullard. The show is written and produced by me, Gabe Bullard. Linda Golden edits the script that I read and the newsletter that you can read by going to GabeBullard.com. And while you're going places on the internet, please go to wherever you got this podcast and rate and review it. You can tell a friend. You can subscribe. Telling a friend would really, really be great. I would love to have some more readers or listeners, and I really appreciate you for listening. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks. Thanks.